So the topic for uh, the contemplation for today is, is uh, honesty. And in my own personal uh, life experience, this has been one of the most uh, profound qualities to pick up and cultivate, contemplate, work with. Um, and I know that, you know, one of the reasons why um, the, the Buddha makes a, quite an importance around not speaking something which is untrue is because when we set up honesty as a principle that is protected really pretty much no matter what the cost then it creates a foundation where we're able to navigate through the quagmire of our minds when we're trying to figure out what actually is the truth when we're relating to something and you know in the way we speak and I certainly you know coming from drama queen stock you know and exaggeration is is uh, a useful strategy in order to um, make a point and yet when we're looking at it in terms of well what's honest when we're using something which distorts things in order to make a point for our own um, purposes um, it's not entirely honest and so you know over the years I've had to consider the exaggerations that I make and how much integrity they have and whether they undermine the very foundation that is needed in order to actually make this investigation useful. And so for myself, you know, I've caught myself out many of times recognizing that the way I'm speaking is distorting something for my own personal gain um, to serve my own personal need. It's not honest and uh, have to check and see well what do I what's more important to me you know my manipulative strategies are actually doing something which has integrity to it so you know I've been humbled on many occasions over many years to with this particular process but what I have found is is, is that if one is able to protect honesty as really a cherished virtue in the same way that harmlessness can be an extremely important virtue, then it serves. And the way that it serves is because, you know, let's look at this. This is, you know, what is this? You know, what is this? What is it? A gong. It's a gong. What else is it? It's a bowl. It's made of a, a collection of different metals. Okay. If I put um, flowers in it, what is it? Um. And if I use it to hold the microphone, what is it? Microphone stand. And if I use it to hit you on the head, what is it? 
it's a weapon. Right? And if I use it to prop the door open, what is it? So what this is, is partially dependent on how it's used. Okay? And also partially dependent on the perceptions that we have around any of the associations that we have around how it's used. Okay? So as a thing, it doesn't have an intrinsic, non-changing reality. It's contextual. Okay? Now, if the only way that you've seen me use this is a gong, you might find what she's doing putting flowers on it. Or it's a little bit disrespectful using it as a doorstop. Okay? If the only way that you've seen me use this is to whack somebody on the head, then it's very possible that when you look at this, it might evoke quite a lot of fear. Because the memory, the association, the story connected to it is with an act of violence. So one of the very tricky things in navigating what is the truth is the truth is contextual, dependent on the way it is used and our reaction to that. Now, this is not an insignificant piece of information because that's true with any truth that we experience in our life. The truth is contextual, dependent on the way that it's used and our reaction to it. Now, one of the beauties is, is, is that when we begin to see that as an operating mechanism that deciphers what is and is not truth, it can put into quite a significant perspective our story. What is the story that I'm telling myself about this thing? And as we're able to identify the story, we can differentiate what's contextual from something which actually has some relevance to the object. Are you following? Okay. Now, let's put this into practice in another way. We have interactions with people all the time. And, you know, sometimes somebody looks at me and we think, oh, they're just such a lovely person. They're so kind and they're so gentle and they're so thoughtful and they're so lovely. And they're just lovely. They're a lovely person. Okay, what's happened? They've looked at me and in looking at me, I have a nice feeling. And in my nice feeling, I make a whole big story about who they are as a person. But I'm missing what's actually happening is, is that I have a nice feeling. Okay? And then another day, the same person looks at me. They just have looked at me. That's all that's happened. And they're deceitful. They're manipulative. They're trying to get something from me. They have an agenda. I feel frightened. I feel intimidated. I feel, I feel anxious. What's happened? They've looked at me. And I have a feeling. And I've missed the fact that I have a feeling. And I've said that it has to do with them. It's them. They've done it to me. And it's that they are that way. That's their nature. Okay? So, if we are honest about what is happening, then we see, okay, there's this whole big story that's related to them that arises because I had a feeling and I missed it. So then we can go back and look and see, well, all right, I have a feeling and the feeling arose because of something that I saw. Now we have two pieces of information. We don't have a story. 
And then when we have those two pieces of information, we can think, well, you know, I can check it out and I can say, you know, are you angry with me? Do you have something you need to talk to me about? Is there something that we need to clear up? We can check it out. There's this oh, wonderful story. Ajahn Sajito, he has quite an inscrutable face at times. And I remember as a novice, I used to go in, I was kitchen manager, and I used to go to talk to him. And I was I'd be terrified, absolutely petrified of having to speak to him. Because you can't read him. You can't, just can't read him. And I wish, I just wish that we had a, a body language interpreter present with us when we were talking so that I could get some signal feedback about what was happening for him, you know. I wasn't, the, I wasn't the only person, you know. And Ajahn Sumedho, who's the abbot of the whole community, was saying, you know, he was looking at Ajahn Sujito, and he looked like such a grump, you know. He just looked like such a grump. And he was out one day, and he said, oh, he's such a grump. And then in the moment of saying he's such a grump, he took his umbrella and tossed it up in the air and flipped it around just to be, you know, lighthearted and playful, you know. So the the visual message that he was giving off was one thing, but what was actually happening inside of him was a completely different thing. And I thought, you know, this is classic, and we do this all the time. So what's the truth? The truth is, is is that I have a feeling, and my feeling comes because I see something. And then when I have that as information, then I have a choice of what I do with it. When this follows itself on, then what happens is that I have a big story about my feeling and I have no information and I have very little choice. Okay? So, there's honesty in the way that we speak about things. Now, speaking about things, is it truthful? Is it actually something that I heard? Is it true? Is it a distortion of the truth? How much of it is a distortion of the truth? And if it's a distortion of the truth, who is being served by that distortion? Okay. Can I speak about it in a way which is more honest? The second one is, is what is happening in the present moment? And can I be honest about what is going on? That is not a small topic. And so it's inevitable. We say, he said, she said, this one happened, this one, or it's their fault. You know, they did it. And there's this lovely little kind of metaphor where, you know, if you're pointing the finger, well, you've got one finger pointing out that way and three fingers pointing back this way. Okay? And, you know, there's a little psychological kind of, um, I don't know what it is, assessment tool. It's not very sophisticated on some levels and in other levels it's very accurate. If you are to sit down and write a piece of paper of the things that drive you crazy about your partner, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, your bosses, your employees, okay, that just drive you spare, write them on a piece of paper, and then look again at that list. It's often the case that the list of what drives us nuts about them is the stuff that we haven't resolved in ourselves. And we don't see it in ourselves, we see it as behavior in them. Okay? So this is a classic psychological mechanism of projecting our own unresolved stuff onto other people. Okay? And we don't see it. We don't see it as my stuff. We see it as their stuff. A projection does not arise as this is a projection that is being put onto another person. 
it arises as this is true. They are actually doing that to me and it actually is like this. That's the way it arises in our consciousness as this is the truth. So when we contemplate truth as a virtue, then what is needed is discernment to pick apart what is saying this is the truth with big, huge, two-foot-high, fluorescent, sparkling letters, this is the truth, and what is actually the truth that we know from an internal experience and an internal reality. And they often do not match up. Now, the same is true with our own patterns that we have about ourselves, our own belief systems. So we have ideas about who we are. We're nice, we're not nice, we're good, we're not good, we're shameful, we are uh, respectful, we are kind, we're angry. You know, we have a long list of belief systems about ourselves. And when any of these things come up, especially when they're very deeply embedded, they don't come up as, oh, this is a thought to consider and reflect. It comes up, this is absolute truth. This is actually the nature of reality and this is the way that it is. So, when we're contemplating truthfulness, there needs to be a ground of stability from which we are able to view these things that are saying this is absolute truth to get some measure and purchase on whether or not that has any reality to it or not. So, when we have mindfulness and awareness as a background that we can rest attention into, when there is some capacity to watch something arise as a story whether it's a story about them or a story about me or a story about it, okay? We can watch the story experience arising in awareness. Then we have a little bit of ground to be able to differentiate what is true. If we don't have that, it's just a quagmire of trying to pulling on straws as we're sinking in quicksand, you know? There's no ground that is stable and a reference point from which one is able to look at what's happening. And the only thing that we can decide is whatever screams with the loudest voice is the thing that must by default be the one that is the truth. And that's not true. So, in order to have truthfulness as a virtue, one has to have ground in order to discern what's arising and how we're relating to it. There's no way that we can have truth as a virtue without having ground. So, we need to develop ground. And so the ground then comes back to learning how to differentiate between attention absorbing into an object and attention relaxing in awareness and knowing an object as an object and a reaction to an object as a reaction to an object. Then we have some ground. And then we can say, all right, of all of the things that are here, what has truth in it? Now, one of the ways in which one can use a kind of reflective discernment in negotiating what is truth or deciding what is truth is, is that if we consider the way the Buddha would speak, the Buddha doesn't scream, the Buddha doesn't judge, the Buddha doesn't condemn, the Buddha doesn't slander as a kind of general standard. 
So if we're trying to get a purchase or a reading on whether or not what we're hearing is ultimate truth or not, then we can think, well, if the Buddha were speaking now, is this the way the Buddha would be speaking? And if you get this screaming, tyrannical rant going in the back of your head, one might presume this is not (laughs) true. has as its nature kindness, appropriateness, honesty, clarity, usefulness as features. So another whole way of working and particularly working in relationship is how do you deal with everybody else's truth? So You have a meeting. There's five people in the meeting, and five people have a different perception about what happened in the meeting, what was decided in the meeting, and the course of action that was was agreed upon in the meeting. You know. That's everybody's truth. is all different. How do you negotiate that? Well, that's also not an easy answer, and also not an easy question, but I think it's, first of all, it's not helpful to decide that there's only one truth that it is actually people do have relative truths about what actually happened. And then it's helpful to have some kind of container or clarification in the meeting so that when you have five people with five different understandings of what was under, what happened and what was agreed upon, you can, in the meeting, go back to, well, this is what we've decided on. Is that correct? And then you can sort it out in that context. But the other way in which this is always challenging is, is, is that, you know, especially in this culture, which really values directness and feedback. And so people say, well, I have an opinion about you, but they don't say it that way. I would like to give you some feedback. They don't say it that way either. Can we talk? <laughs> I don't know what people do. But so what happens is, is that people are telling me, you're doing this and 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 I don't like it. And so you've just been kind of doused with a whole complex mixture of a person's projections, their observations, their own uh, fears and anxieties that are coming on to you, and a little bit of wisdom and discernment. What's the truth? Well, the truth is, is that all of that is there. And so, you know, the way of responding to a situation like that is to go back to your own refuge and know that all that you need to do is to take refuge in the truth. That you don't have to take on board anything that anybody is saying. But it is responsive and responsible to reflect on what is being said and see if there is resonance inside with stuff that actually a person needs to attend to. Now, one of the things I discover, and I don't know whether anybody else has the same experience or whether it can be even translated, is, is, is that because people can say something to me that's either their projection or they're talking about something that I'm not aware of or a mixture. All right? When they're telling me something that is their projection, that is purely their projection, they can tell me something. And it's like, you know when you, when you tap on a, on a watermelon and there's a very clear resonance? There's no, there's just a very clear body resonance in my system 
I'm listening to them speaking and there's a very clear resonance. There's nothing in it that's mine. But if they're speaking and my whole there's a dull resonance, then there's something that needs to be examined and explored. It doesn't necessarily mean it's mine, but there's something there that needs further exploration. And so there's a kind of body body uh, ripeness test, projection test, for me to somatically get a feeling of whether somebody is telling me something which is theirs or it's actually for me to further investigate. Now, I don't know if that resonates with you in terms of your own experience, but what I do know is, is that living in community it really helped me a lot to be able to differentiate when somebody is speaking to me and it's their stuff and when it's not. Because it's incredibly confusing. You know, when people are telling things to you to be able to differentiate what's what? What's the truth? Is what they're saying the truth? Is what I'm feeling the truth? You know, where is their ground of discernment in order to tell? So, you know, these kinds of things of figuring out, you know, in community or in work or in relationship or, you know, what's what. Now, you know, with a person on the street, it's usually not too complicated. You know, if somebody comes over and, you know, does a number on you, it's really not too confusing that it's their stuff, you know, because it's there's no context for them saying something like that that would necessarily have any... Um, useful application internally but in relationship it's not necessarily so straightforward and we get energetically and emotionally entangled with each other and it's a little bit difficult to figure out where one person ends and the other person begins you know so you know for me I found this kind of way of contemplating really really helpful So what is the truth? You know, what is happening right now? What is the story I am telling myself about what's happening right now? You know, what's how am I relating to the objects? You know, what's the story in it? And so when we're able to drop the story and come back to an awareness, then we have some capacity for being able to differentiate between elements that have truth in it and elements that don't. Because, you know, mostly it's not absolutely black or white. It's not completely true. It's not completely false. And even if somebody dumps, like with a full-scale rant, where there's no timing, there's no kindness, there's no uh, respectfulness, there still can be, especially if a person feels very grounded and confident in themselves, the ability to listen and to take the two grains of truth that's behind the rant and distill it into gold as this is actually something that needs to be contemplated and further reflected on. So even if somebody else is not speaking skillfully, it doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity to respond skillfully and take on board the element of truth, even if it's just a tiny fraction of what they're saying and make good use of it. So for me, you know, this whole topic of what's true and how do you cultivate truth and what is honest is really deep. It's really, really, really deep. 
And it has been very important for me to work with this. And I've seen shifts happen as a result. Are there any questions? If you can comment on, there are times when I can notice, say I'm going to react to somebody, a friend or my partner, they come and say this to them, I'm upset, they did this. And then um, before any reaction happens, get some space and realize, no, there's really something going on in me, it's not that. So that's like one step further, that's good. And then it becomes really difficult to see, well, exactly what's going on in me. It becomes like a a kind of clouded. I can get the sense that there's something going on, but it's not... Then the clarity kind of goes away a little bit. It's not so clear what exactly is going on. As a personal thing, I found myself in that position a lot. It's a little bit difficult to see. And maybe because there's a resistance to actually seeing what's going on in me or something like that. I don't know, so there's this... It's the first step of stepping back and noticing, okay, there's some webs here. But then the webs kind of get unclear when it's online. I think it's very natural. And I think part of the reason why is because my way of describing what you're becoming aware of is unconscious patterns that are uh, allowing uh, a reactive mechanism to trigger something in you. Okay? And because they're unconscious, it's not clear what they are. So working with unconscious patterns requires retracing the footsteps of the yeti because you, what you, you can't see something unconscious directly. All you can see is the patterns that are lead, left as a result of it being there. Okay, But that's wonderful that you can get a sense, well, this actually is not so much to do with them but to do with me. Okay, And we can see that. You know, somebody can do something and it can really land. You know, and we can get completely... Uh, knocked over because it's landed in something that's really tender now sometimes it's helpful to communicate that sometimes it's just helpful to work with it in terms of our own practice but retracing the footsteps of the yeti getting clear about what we don't see you know there's no straightforward way of doing that you know there's lots of tools that help but there's nothing that's straightforward one of the things that I found very helpful is working with another person who understands that territory. Because it, it, if you have another person who's actually in the field with you, unraveling the signs and the signals of the footsteps, they're not caught by the same um, triggering mechanisms. And if they have some understanding of the kind of territory that's involved, it can be phenomenally helpful in just holding a space to allow light to go where it normally doesn't, normally gets deflected. So I found that helpful. And then once one is able or familiar to use the kind of tools or ground or skills, then one can do oneself. You know. But until then, it's helpful to have another person holding that space. But just to know, okay, I can see that there's something going on in me, but I'm not quite clear exactly what it is. That already is tremendously honest and very clarifying that the the tangle of web that would have happened if you hadn't gotten that far can be separated that much, you know. 
We could say, yeah, I'm really upset right now, but actually there's something going on. I'm not quite sure what it is. And um, it just might take me a little bit of time. I might never know. But at least I don't need to give you a real big reflection on what you just did because it actually doesn't have anything to do with you. Or what it has to do with you is that it just triggered me in a very significant way. (laughs) The skillful part is to actually act on not acting. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so that has to feed into, you know, the whole principle of patience and right action and right seeing, right speech. You know, that all of those come together as well as kindness and harmlessness. They all kind of come together. When one recognizes that one is able not to act in a situation like that, then all of those other things are supported. And that when when one forgets or when the habit of wanting to say something or do something or sort the other person out overrides then one can see that it doesn't have a good result. And I can build on that one because I can often, fairly quickly in, in retrospect, not absolutely in the moment, as you're saying, but quicker all the time I've been able to realize that a particular strong emotional tweak is, is my stuff. But from there, difficulty is sorting out the truthfulness of finding out what's, what's the most um, skillful or useful truth to find in the awareness of the old pattern mm-hmm. and what is the most congruent place to go with that uh, way to act on that, not necessarily in relation to the other person, but where do I take that in my own life? Mm-hmm. And for me, often, a lot of different inputs come in and some of them have to do with going back to resolving old stories and some of them have to do with making choices in going new directions and then I get all confused it's harder to discern what's most truthful or honest to myself in that way and yeah well I think part of that is because you know we have an, we have an, an un, unspoken agenda that I'm supposed to know everything right now. And a lot of things just require time to reveal. You know, when you have a stacked up list of priorities, which one's the most important? So there actually isn't confusion. The confusion comes because there's an expectation that there should be immediately not only the list, but the prioritizing of the list. Okay. And so patience comes, well, okay, so I see that these seven things are things that I really value. But at the moment, I don't have any clarity about which one's the most important. And so then one needs to come back to patience of not knowing until the clarity emerges in its own time. And then as one is able to relax not knowing, there won't be confusion. There'll just be the discomfort of spending time not knowing. 
this is the list and I don't know the priorities. There's no confusion. That's truth. That's the clarity of the moment. That's a good distinction between confusion and discomfort. Yeah. And most of us, myself included, hanging out not knowing is one of the things that we would do anything other than do that. You know, it's a deeply, deeply uncomfortable place to be until we realize that it is the path to all kinds of clarity and freedom and peace. You know? But that kind of learning is like you don't get there unless there's an elephant sitting on top of you. Because it's one of the things we will squickle and try and do anything else other than experience the anxiety and the feeling of not knowing. The uncertainty of not knowing. But there's an enormous amount of life that we don't know. You know? And it's like the bush. You can't think your way out of not knowing. You know? You have to just wait until the time emerges for knowing to come forward. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.